Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today, we've got an exciting interview coming up with Mike Sieklander. Mike Sieklander is a professional trainer, competitive shooter, and TV personality, all in the area of firearms training. He's a nationally known personage, and we're delighted to have him with us here today. But first, our usual news and notes in psychology and medicine. I want to bring you a couple of things today before we get into the interview because they really grab my attention. Coffee is one of the biggest selling drinks on the planet. People drink coffee in almost every country in the world. And there's been a lot of controversy uh, about the effects of coffee. There's been concern that coffee causes uh, bladder cancer. And that's been a concern for a long time. The coffee people, of course, having an international business, are producing research indicating that coffee is good for you. But we're never really sure, is the research being put forth by the coffee people, or is it real research? Well, now we seem to have some studies that perhaps we can believe in. They are in the Annals of Internal Medicine, which is a peer-reviewed and well-respected journal. One study followed more than 450,000 adults from 10 European countries for an average of 16 years. And that's a big-time study, folks, right? 450,000, 10 countries, 16 years. And they found that coffee was associated with a 12% reduction in all-cause mortality rates in men and 7% in women with higher intake of coffee linked to greater benefits. Interesting, eh? The second study followed 185,000 U.S. adults. I mean, these are gigantic studies. Imagine it, 185,000 people you're following for 16 years. And once again, they linked one cup of coffee daily to a 12% reduction in mortality and two or more cups up to 18% reduction. Wow. Both studies found similar trends for both regular and decaf. If you want more information about the potential health benefits of coffee, see tinyurl.com forward slash coffee WL. And if any of you do some research on this, I'd sure like to hear from you, and I'd like your opinion. Are these real studies? I mean, they're in this very well-respected journal. I mean, do you believe in them? Or do you think these are just the coffee companies, again, putting forth this massive amount of data in order to talk us into drinking coffee? I'd like your opinion on it. I'm going to do more research on it myself. I do drink a cup or two of coffee myself, although I have gone 10 years at a time with drinking no coffee because the whole area is controversial. 
One more area that's controversial and I wanted to bring to your attention today, eggs. Now, eggs have gotten a bad reputation because of their high cholesterol content. There's 185 milligrams of, uh, of cholesterol in the yolk of a large egg. However, dietary cholesterol found in animal foods may have relatively little effect on blood cholesterol, the stuff, you know, that little cholesterol swimming around. One large egg has 72 calories, 5 grams of fat, 70 milligrams of sodium, and 6 grams of protein. There are also designer eggs and, 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 and organic eggs. That means an organic egg, when it says that on the carton, means that the chickens were fed an organic diet. It doesn't necessarily mean the eggs are more nutritious. What about the yolk color? Well, that depends on what the chicken ate. Wheat and barley produce a light oak yolk. Corn, a medium yellow yolk. And marigold petals, a deep yellow Though not a sure indication, darker yolks may have more omega-3s. We don't know that for sure. Brown eggs are not more nutritious than white. Different breeds lay eggs with different colors. I have chickens at home that lay blue eggs, aracanas, but they're not necessarily better. The bottom line of this whole thing that I'm leading up to is we're in a controversial area right now, whether eating cholesterol actually contributes to more cholesterol in the blood. You would think it does, but not necessarily, because modern thinking is now that it's inflammation that is the culprit. How does inflammation work? Picture a garden hose. Smooth inside the hose, the water runs freely. But suppose you have an obstruction inside the hose, right inside the tube. You can see how the water is going to hit that obstruction, and it's going to move around it, maybe try to knock it over, but it's going to hit it. Well, inside of our cardiovascular system, we have tubes, right? That's what the cardiovascular system is made up of, tubes in the heart. If you have something sticking up in the tube, something swimming by could get caught on it. And that is what modern thinking is about. We all have cholesterol. It's swimming along in the blood right through the tubes. But if we have inflammation that causes a little tiny microscopic hair to stick up inside the tube. The more of those little microscopic hairs we have in the tube, the more the possibility of cholesterol sticking to the hair, and that eventually causes the blockage that we call atherosclerosis. So what do we do? Do we keep eating eggs and yolks, being uncertain of whether we have those hairs? I leave it up to you folks. I myself, I stopped eating yolks, uh, not totally, maybe 30 years ago. I have a yolk. I like to have a joke every once in a while, but I keep them very low. I keep my own serum cholesterol below 179. That's based on the famous Harvard Framingham study. If you keep your cholesterol low enough, then even if you have some of those hairs sticking up that are going to collect cholesterol, you're not going to have much cholesterol to collect on the hairs. At least that's my thinking on it. Love to hear your thinking on it. In the meanwhile, enjoy your eggs, and it's up to you about whether you want to have some yolks and jokes with your eggs or not. I guess what we have for breakfast so often is our coffee and eggs. Well, now let's move on.
to our interview with Mike Sieglander. Mike Sieglander was directly responsible for the development of all USSA training programs. Prior to that, as an employee of the federal government, Mike served as the branch chief and lead instructor for the firearms division with the Federal Air Marshal Service and was a senior instructor at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. I already have an email from somebody wanting me to ask Mike about what it's like being an air marshal. Remember those guys after 9-11, the men who were undercover on airplanes, ready to take on bad guys? We'll find out some about that. Mike has an extensive formal training and experience in all phases of military and law enforcement. He's a highly sought-after tactical and competitive trainer, and he's a high-level performer on the competition handgun circuit. He's won international, national, and local awards. I could go on and take up the whole interview with the amount of his, Mike's contribution to firearms, training, safety, and shooting, but instead, we'll just bring him aboard. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Mike. Hey, how are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. Where are you today? I am actually in my home in Owasso, Oklahoma. Okay. We're out here in California, so we've got a nice long-distance interview. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be home. I've been on the road for weeks and weeks and weeks and actually met you on the road, so it's actually nice to be sitting here in my disarrayed home office. Yes, yes. And, and by the way, I, I will tell our listeners that uh, Mike Sieglander gave a class right here in Fort, little tiny Fort Bragg, California, not too long ago, and I was fortunate enough to attend the class. It was nothing short of excellent. To begin with, how did you come to this whole profession? Tell us something about your early history, high school, if you went to college, what happened, and how did you get into this whole area? Well, uh, the story is, uh, is a long one, but I'll certainly paraphrase it for your listeners. And also, I, I do want to mention that while I did run the U.S. Shooting Academy in Tulsa for, for many years as a COO, now I'm independently on the road with my company, Shooting Performance, and the American Warrior Society. But uh, to be honest with you, it, you know, it started as a child. I, I grew up in the mountains of Wyoming and Idaho and uh, had a love of hunting and fishing and the outdoors. And at some point in time, to be honest with you, I had a, an, an uncle. He was actually my, my father's best friend, but we called him Uncle John, who introduced me to handgun shooting. He was actually a police officer, I believe, in Rapid City, South Dakota, and every year he would come to visit, and he would always bring his uh, service revolver. And we would go out back and set up a paper plate, and he would let me shoot it. And, man, from then on, I was just addicted and, and shot every gun I could possibly get my hands on. And, and that evolved into me following in my father's footsteps and, and joined the Marine Corps. And, of course, obviously in the Marine Corps, you're, you're trained and qualified with weapons. And then later on, falling in love with uh, competitive shooting and having an interest in law enforcement after the Marine Corps. So I, I kind of bounced around and got out of the Marine Corps and went into law enforcement. And uh, at the, the, entire, the entire time, I was paralleling and doing competitive shooting at a very high level, which eventually, eventually led me to become a sponsored uh, semi-professional shooter. And I'm not, I don't do it full-time. I also teach and do some TV stuff. But that's kind of the path I followed and then later on into 
federal law enforcement and federal law enforcement training. And, of course, that's uh, – I know you mentioned the Federal Air Marshal Service. I have quite a, a unique background there as well, sir. But uh, kind of a long story. It almost sounds like I can't hold down a job, but I promise you, I always moved on to the next best, best <laughs> thing in my mind. Well, it <laughs> sounds like all the jobs are related. Please tell our listeners, what is competitive shooting? Well, competitive shooting is um, basically any style of shooting where we're actually going to shooting matches. And literally, when we say competitive shooting, it's, it's a huge arena of different sporting events. You may do what we call practical shooting, which is more of, of, a, of a speed and accuracy-based sport with a handgun or potentially a rifle. And then there are also all of the, uh, the events, for example, the NRA Bianchi Cup and the older uh, slower fire bullseye events you know, stuff that has been around for centuries, you know, pure marksmanship-related events. But the bottom line is, uh, imagine, you know, men and women showing up at a range somewhere with firearms and a skill set and going head-to-head and competing against each other and seeing who is ultimately the best shot and who can perform the best with their firearm. Always shooting at paper or cardboard or pieces of metal at targets, not at humans or animals. No, no, never at humans or animals, although there are some styles of competitive shooting where they actually do silhouette shooting. They shoot at metal silhouettes of, yeah. you know, small animals and stuff like that. They yeah, look like animals. Paper targets. That's right. exactly right. All now, paper targets. what is personal defense training? Well, defensive training is the, you know, the, the training that revolves around someone that is focused specifically on self-defense, meaning their entire goal with a handgun or a rifle or a shotgun is a self-defense goal. It's not necessarily a competitive goal. It's not a gaming goal, for example. It's, you know, their life and the, uh, the, the safety and the lives of their family members. So does personal defense training constitute both how to use a firearm in personal defense as well as other ty- aspects of personal defense, such as mental preparedness and so on? Well, you know, I am the co-host of a TV show called The Best Defense, and one of the things that we talk about all of the time is, you know, personal defense. The self-defense spectrum is a huge spectrum of, of material. You know, a lot of a lot of times I think people focus on firearms as a very big portion of that, and, and it is a portion of it, but it is not the biggest portion of it. You know, personal defense or self-defense is, you know, a, a pool of material that may include awareness and avoidance. Uh, unarmed skills, you know, such as, you know, self-defense skills without a firearm or self-defense skills without a weapon uh, or less lethal self-defense skills, you know, pepper spray or taser, you know, tactics and and smart use of uh, positioning and lights. And, you know, we even go into the point where we talk about, you know, crime prevention through environmental design, which means basically how to design the environment in and around your home to help you better survive a situation or prevent a situation that could happen way, way, way before we would ever have to utilize the firearm to defend ourselves. I read an article by uh, Clint Smith, who is a high-level shooter in the United States and a trainer, and he said in the article that although he is... Perhaps I, I imagine he's at the master's level of shooting. You must know more about him than I... He said that if he sees an incident involving guns in any way or about to take place involving guns, what he does is he runs away as soon as possible and calls the police. And that was an interesting thing to read from a guy of that level. What's your opinion? 
The and, and that's a great question, and I'll uh, I'll give you an interesting answer. And uh, so I have um, I've, on my podcast called the American Warrior Show. I've had a guest named Andrew Bronca several times, and Andrew Bronca is probably, in my opinion, the, the leading self defense expert in terms of legal advice. He's an attorney, and he gives legal self-defense-related advice. He has a book called The Law of Self-Defense. I highly recommend it to anybody that wants to learn more. The Law of Self-Defense. I'm just repeating it for our listeners. Yeah, The Law of Self-Defense, and I think his website is thelawofselfdefense.com. And there's a a link on my American Warrior Show um, uh, site as well. But what we discussed is all of the things that go around actually you know, observing and maybe interacting in a situation out on the street. So, for example, uh, and he gives a couple of very good examples, and one of them is a situation where a man observes a woman uh, or uh, another man dragging a woman. So he's dragging her kind of by the shirt, maybe his hair. They're kind of fighting. I mean, they're going back and forth. It looks to be a pretty violent fight, and this, this guy decides to intervene and ends up pulling a firearm out. And I don't believe he used the firearm, but the point is, in the end, when everything had cleared out and he and they figured out what was going on, well, the guy in this particular case was an undercover narcotics cop, and he was making an arrest on, you know, uh, apparently a prostitute or someone that was actually selling drugs. So the key therein is, and I would assume what Clint Smith is referring to, is you don't ever know what you're getting involved in. And if if you do, you know, if you think you do, you you're probably wrong. Uh, and I wouldn't say that uh, I would never be involved in this situation, but I would tell you that the vast majority of your listeners are best served if they're armed or unarmed, specifically armed, in, in being a good witness. Be a good witness, call the police, whatever else. Now, that said, you know, I can tell you personally, uh, if I ever observe a child being harmed, I'm going to intervene. Uh, I may intervene uh, and, and help a man or a woman in certain cases, but I'm going to be very, very particular about those cases, and I'm going to make absolute certain that I know exactly what's going on. I'm not going to guess. I'm going to make sure before I ever step into that situation. Cause it's very, very risky. Now, the TV show, Best Defense, how can our listeners uh, watch that? So the best defense airs on the outdoor channel, and uh, they can actually watch it on the outdoor channel if they get that. But they can also download and watch all of our previous episodes, and I highly recommend that on an app called MOTV. So there's an app they can get to watch. And matter of fact, if they download, they can get all of the hunting and fishing and shooting shows as well. So MOTV, or they can simply look for the outdoor channel in their cable providers package and uh, watch the episode. We'll be airing our first episode in late December, I believe. Now, I believe you belong to an association called the International Defensive Pistol Association, IDPA. Is that correct? That is correct, sir. And tell us what that is. The International Defensive Pistol Association is one of two major practical shooting organizations in the U.S. So uh, originally, some of the uh, original uh, self-defense gurus, Jeff Cooper among uh, one of them, decided they wanted to create a sporting event where people could actually test themselves against other shooters at a match um, and, you know, utilize speed and accuracy in the match. So they had to do fast draws and movements and all these kind of things. And eventually that sport grew into from what it was originally called, which is the International Practical Shooting Confederation, to the United States Practical Shooting Association. The problem was a lot of those um, 
individuals and the equipment they used evolved into less defensive techniques as well as gear. So um, a guy by the name of Bill Wilson and a bunch of other guys, you know, Ken Hackathorn and some of his uh, friends created a sport called the International Defensive Pistol Association, which was specifically focused more on the defensive use of the handgun. So all of the guns and gear in the sport are more defensive-oriented, or at least theoretically that was their original design. Of course, it is still a shooting sport, and the founders know that. They, they fully admit that. It's still a shooting match, a pistol match, uh, not necessarily a defensive training arena. Is it for women as well as men? Absolutely. Well, there are, matter of fact, a single, as far as I'm concerned and aware of, the single growing, grow, biggest growing body of shooters is female shooters getting into the sport of both IDPA and USPSA and some of the other mini sports that surround that, like Steel Challenge and Bianchi Cup and stuff like that. Okay, now before we uh, go on to the next question, I'm going to give a little uh, background material to our listeners. In 2014, the United States had a population of approximately 319 million people. Based on production data, manufacturing, from firearms manufacturers, there were approximately 371 million firearms owned by private citizens and domestic law enforcement personnel. Of these 371 million firearms, approximately 146 million were handguns. Now, we know that this issue of gun ownership has become somewhat controversial uh, in the United States, and it actually has uh, in, uh, in other countries. In fact, uh, I believe in England, they passed a law and people turned in all their firearms and were either melted down or they did something else with them. So we have data on what happens when you take that approach. Um, In this country, gun ownership is allowed, and there are certain, again, controversial issues about it. For example, it's often stated that there are 33,000 deaths every year, approximately 33,000 deaths due to firearms. But what often isn't stated is that of those 33,000 deaths by firearms, over 21,000 of them are suicides. So this sort of changes the complexion of the whole thing because then you're left with approximately eight or 9,000 deaths by firearms in a population of 330 million which statistically comes out to a very tiny percentage. We have also, in some states, a person can go in and buy a firearm and leave. In other states, a person goes in and buys a firearm, and there's a waiting period, sometimes 10 days, uh, before they can pick up the gun. In some states... A person can take a pistol, and correct me if, if any of this uh, sounds off to you, please, Mike, because you're way beyond, you know, I'm, I'm just learning and researching, and you're an expert on it. In some states, a person can buy a firearm, a pistol, and put it right on their belt and walk around with it, right out in public. Everybody can see they're carrying a pistol. In other states, 
a person has to get a license, which is referred to as a CCW. There's a lot of differences. Not only are there differences in the United States, but it's very complicated because if a person goes from one state where they can say, I think Nevada is one of those states where you can pack a pistol openly, walk right into a supermarket with a pistol. But if that same person crosses a state line into California with the same pistol right on their belt, they can get arrested and taken away and their pistol will be taken away. Another example, a person can qualify for what's called a CCW, concealed carry weapon, which means they're allowed to carry it in the state that they have that license. They can be traveling from one state where they have that license into another, and they could get arrested if you're not allowed to have a CCW. And I believe this has happened. I think people have gotten off a plane in New York City or out of a car in New York City where they came with a totally legitimate, good citizen, went into New York where it's not allowed and they got arrested. Let's take it from there, very basically. Tell us what your understanding is. You know what it is. What is a CCW? Well, I mean, a, a concealed carry weapon or a concealed carry license that is, uh, and if you if you follow history in the last you know thirty or so years, pretty much across the board, a concealed carry permit is now issued or issuable in almost every single state, to my knowledge. As a matter of fact, I don't think there's a state that doesn't have a uh, can or will issue or even a shall issue permit type law on the books uh, and you know some of the original states started out two or three states said hey we're going to pass a, a legal law that allows our citizens to carry concealed as long as they have the license and then what you found is a domino effect of all of these other states following suit and one of the things that that caused them to follow suit was a lot of these states that passed the original concealed carry license or concealed carry weapon permits saw a drop in crime. They saw crime drop, typically, believe it or not, even though more citizens in the state were carrying a concealed license. So there's actually a drop in crime when the people are allowed the CCWs. Well, you know, you would have to, uh, you would actually have to do the research and look across the board and compare being before and after. But from the data that I've seen, more often than not, there's a drop in crime for concealed carry. And then, of course, you know, the funny thing about statistics and numbers are you really got to look at where the statistics come from and what the numbers that people are actually looking at. But I can tell you, literally, from personal experience as a police officer on the street and as a corrections officer in a corrections division when I worked for the sheriff's office in, in Knoxville area of Tennessee, I actually talked to numerous inmates, more than one, that, believe it or not, made reference that, that, that they didn't think that concealed carry licenses, licenses or permits should be allowed because it makes it unfair. And I'm like, well, can you please define what you mean by unfair? And the answer was, and this was from multiple individuals, well, then we don't know who's armed. And, you know, if we're, and, you know, you got to think about this. The average criminal's job is to do crime. They're going to go rob people or rape people or hurt people or take things, right? That's their job. So the way they look at it, the way they look at their job, it's unfair if while they're doing their job, there may be a possibility they might run into someone that's armed with a firearm. So it's kind of a unique perspective. 
I did a little research on this on the internet for whatever that's worth to all of us because nowadays it's hard to trust what you see and what you find but you still look and you still do your best and here it says that people who carry who have concealed carry licenses are 13.5 times less likely to be arrested for nonviolent arrest uh, offenses than the general public and they're 5.7 times less likely to be arrested for violent offenses, and there seems to be a great deal of literature backing this up, saying that the people who get licensed and who carry uh, weapons are statistically very significantly less likely to cause any kind of problem, be it with a gun or without a gun. It's almost as if saying that the people who go to the trouble to take this training become safer citizens. Is that your experience? You know, um, I would like to, to hope and say that they become safer citizens because they have an increased awareness of the responsibility of the fact that they're now armed. And there is an incredible responsibility to practice good avoidance and awareness you know, techniques in, in that particular case because there's so much legal and potential risk of going on. But, you know, to be honest with you, I don't necessarily know if that would pan out. I really think in, in the... In the, tr- in the truth, and in the reality of it is that the people that will go out and get a permit to carry a firearm and follow the law are people that are already law-abiding. Um, you know, and that's the, that's the issue with most gun control laws. They're designed to uh, institute some sort of law, you know, that only a person that abides by laws will follow. That's the entire problem with most gun control is if, if an individual decides they're going to be a criminal and not abide by a law and and rape or murder or steal or rob, well, they've already proven to you, established without a reasonable doubt, that they, in fact, will break the law. So what makes you think that they would actually follow any other law? So I think, <laughs> you know, when you look at those statistics, I think, honestly, the people that actually go and get the permit are those kind of people anyways. They're the kind of people that are good and just and relatively logical and probably, you know, have, have a good mental balance and some sort of responsibility. They're, they're responsible citizens of the country. They're already those people, um, which, you know, makes them more likely to, you know, be less involved in crime. Well, we've got research to back up what you're saying, Mike. I mean, I'm looking at a study right here by uh, an epidemiologist, uh, Anthony Fabio of Pittsburgh's Graduate School of Public Health, and uh, he partnered with the uh, Pittsburgh police to trace the origins of firearms and, uh, and crimes. And what he found in this study that was published was that um, lawful gun owners uh, commit less than 20% of all gun crimes. And he found that uh, the other 80% of gun crimes um, were committed by people who had a gun illegally. And so that bears out what you're saying, that uh, people who do illegal things, whatever it is, are are likely to get an illegal gun. Those people who do illegal things are not going to go to a class, spend a a number of days, go through testing and so on in order to get a license. What they want to do is go to whoever they can get to, buy a gun, and that's the end of it. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, in today's day and age, you know, there there are literally, there's so much access to firearms and what, anything someone wants to use. If they're a criminal, they're going to find a way to get a gun. They're going to find a way to get whatever else. 
they're all over. But they, they, they don't have a, a need or requirement to follow a rule or follow a law. That's why they're a criminal. You know, that's the definition. That's why they break the law, because they don't respect the law. They don't respect humans. They don't respect human property. They don't respect life. That's one of the interesting things about the con- national controversy is, is that the controversy has to do with creating laws or not creating laws with regard to gun ownership and gun carrying and so on. But all those laws are aimed at all of us who follow the law. But the very people that we're trying to control, they in and of themselves do not follow the law. That's part of what of what they do. So it, it's an interesting thing to be creating a law that, that that really in a way won't apply to them because they don't follow it to begin with. It, it's, a, it's an interesting aspect um, um, uh, of the whole controversy. Uh, do you think that, uh, that all citizens should get some form of firearms training as a part of their education, perhaps at the high school or college level? Well, I, I think that if we lived in a country where some sort of firearms education was mandatory, then we would see a significant drop in firearms-related crime. We would also see a significant drop in, you know, safety-related accidents, you know, accidental shootings, accidental child shootings. Maybe, you know, maybe even some of these suicides would fall. I think that would significantly affect how we are. And if you look, if you look at the country as a whole, yes, we have a, you know, our population has grown immensely over the last 100 years. But 100 years ago, in the average school, you might have seen a, a young boy or a young girl bring their 22 to school or bring their 22 rifle to school and leave them with the principal. And when they left, at the end of the day, they would go and, you know, hunt or shoot things on the way home. And, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily the right solution at all. That doesn't make sense in a lot of different environments. But some basic education. You know, here's what a gun is. Here are some safety-related things about a gun. Here's some responsible ownership tips of you know firearms, I think if we had some basic education there, then 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 guns wouldn't be these estranged evil devices that people try to label them as as soon as something bad happens. Because the reality is simply a tool. It's no different, you know, than a large, very powerful, uh, high horsepower vehicle that that kills five or six people at the hands of a drunk driver. It, it's no different. It's just a thing. It's a mechanical object that would sit in a parking lot and not move unless a drunk driver got behind the wheel and ran somewhere over. Mm-hmm. Well, the statistics indicate uh, across the board that the people who take the trouble to get the license by far cause the least problems. Uh, I have one here that was done with on f- 14 and a half million concealed carry weapon holders and, uh, they cause trouble with a firearm at the rate of 0.003%. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty tiny, and that sort of bears out that training and awareness, um, but again, it's not just the training and awareness, but as you're pointing out, it's the kind of person who would take the training awareness is out to be a good citizen uh, to begin with. Uh, let's move on. Um, do you think that... Uh, there should be background checks, and certain citizens should be restricted. Or do you think everyone should be allowed to own a firearm? No, I, I do believe in a background systematic check. Um, I, I do believe that there are some people that aren't that are not mentally able or capable, and that would certainly be more urine to own a firearm. 
Um, I, you know, certainly feel that in order to own a firearm and have a firearm on or about you, you, know, you should be someone that is of good moral character, you know, no criminal background, et cetera, et cetera, as well as good mental health. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, that that's a significant issue. And as a matter of fact, I think that's the, the key issue. That's the pinnacle point of that's That's the thing we really need to be looking at it as, a, as a country is not what do we do with guns or with or without guns or about guns. What do we do with the people? How do we manage the people? What is wrong with the people that that cause these things to happen potentially? Mm-hmm. May mm-hmm. you know they when we see a criminal act. But yeah, I, I do support background checks. I do believe you know they, people should be you know, morally good people as well as mentally stable people before they uh, own a firearm. Yeah, I mean there, it is something that uh, it's uh, that we can't get away from uh, in our country, which is that even though uh, as I pointed out. Uh, the vast majority of death by firearm uh, are suicides uh, by two to one, what, over 21,000 suicides and 8,000 homicides. Uh, the, the, the studies also indicate that of uh, 22 other high-income nations, the U.S. gun-related murder rate is still 25 times higher. And, you know, people point fingers at us for that. And... Uh, Although the United States has uh, half the population of all the other 22 nations that were researched combined, the U.S. had 82% of all gun deaths and uh, 90% of all the women in the 22 countries that were killed, 90% of them were killed by guns in the United States. Uh, these are, these are uh, you know tough statistics, and uh, it, it makes one... Uh, if you're if you're just looking at the statistics with, without really digging in deeper, it makes it look as if you know just having the guns is what's causing the trouble. But then when you dig deeper, you see that the people who are licensed don't cause the trouble, and it looks like it's the criminals who cause the trouble. And so maybe we're trying to take guns away from the honest people erroneously. And let's let take a look here at who owns the guns. Well. Of all the guns that these, uh, what did I say, 371 million guns, 45% of them are owned by males, 15%, oh, 45% of males, rather, own guns, 15% of all females own guns, 33% of all Caucasians in the United States own guns, 22% of all non-white people own guns. 38% of Republicans own guns. 22% of Democrats own guns. And 31% of independents, right in the middle, own guns. And why do they own the guns? Well, they were asked, in vast numbers they were asked, why do you own a gun? 60% of the people asked why they, who own guns, asked why they own a gun. 60% of them say, to protect my family and myself against crime. 36% say hunting, and 21% add in recreation and target shooting. So the vast majority of people who own guns are saying that they own them as protection against crime. But then we have these these outrageous crimes like we just had in, in Vegas, and Getting to that particular incident, Mike, this man who did the shooting 
took what's called a semi-automatic rifle. For the listeners who are not familiar with this, semi-automatic means you pull the trigger, and every time you pull the trigger, a bullet comes out of the front of the gun. An automatic is you pull the trigger, and a whole bunch of bullets come out of the front of the gun. That's just to put it in the vernacular. This man took a semi-automatic where you had to pull the trigger every time, and he did something to it, which is being called a bump stock, which turned it into an automatic. What is a bump stock, Mike? Well, and it, it, Doc, I'll answer your question. Do you mind if I reflect on the, the, the uh, firearm-related deaths real quick? Please. Uh, and then no, okay. please. So I want to add just two, two quick points. Number one, when you look at those deaths and you subtract suicides, okay, so then we look at the rest of the total deaths. One of the things you got to be very particular, anybody listening right now, I want you to think this through and do the research. When you look at the additional deaths, you need to look at the crime-on-crime crime deaths. Because we, we, I think we assume that, oh, there's additional, whatever they are, 15,000 deaths or whatever. That's uh, uh, someone getting a gun and just randomly shooting one or someone, you know, a, a good person. That A lot of those deaths are drug dealer on drug dealer, crime on crime, bad against bad or whatever else. And they both, both of those owners of those firearms, oftentimes in those cases, are illegally owned firearms. You know, if they've been, if they've had a, a convicted felony, they're already illegal. They, they're not supposed to own the firearm. But then the second thing you can look at is you can look at any country, for example. Let's say we could find a, some small town, small two or three small villages in the middle of Ireland, and then you compare our vehicular deaths to their vehicular deaths, and you would say, well, we have three thousand percent more vehicular deaths in the U.S. than they they do. Man, we must have big, mean cars. The cars must be way too fast. Well, the reality is they just don't have any cars in the small villages. So when you look at these gun deaths, you know you've got to you really got to step back and look at them with an objective viewpoint before we make too many assumptions and look at the real facts. Um, and to answer your question, a bump fire stock. Well, uh, hold actually, before before you do. Okay. Let let me chime in on what you were just saying because there's research to back up what you're saying. Uh, Again, 33,000 deaths by firearms, roughly, in the United States. Two-thirds of them suicides. That leaves about eight to 10,000 homicides. And to back up what Mike Sieglander is saying, it is well document, documented that of those eight to 10,000 homicides, over half of them are young black people in poor areas. And he's, Mike, as you heard him refer to, those are gang-related. Most of those are gang-related. So if you take out of the 8,000 homicides, the four or 5,000 that are gang-related young black guys uh, shooting at each other, now we're down to roughly three or 4,000 homicides. And then a high percentage of those, by the way, it turns out, are within the family, people uh, shooting one another in the family. And it's mostly men shooting women more than women shooting men. If you do what Mike said and run the numbers on this, now divide your three or 4,000 homicides among citizens by 330 million, and it doesn't look like we're really killing each other at that great a rate. Now, obviously, if you're one of those three or 4,000 people, it's a tragedy, and I'm not meaning to make light of that in the slightest. It's a tragedy for yourself, for your family, for everybody related and friends, and we know that. But again, statistically, it's a very, very small number, and it does. And Mike is right. Mike Seeklander, I guess, is correct that we're not the country that it looks like when you cite these other statistics. Okay, let's come back. Unless you want to weigh in some more on this, Mike. No, sir. That that's good. Um, 
So we were talking about bump fire stocks, which has now become very, I wouldn't say popularized. Certainly it's well known what a bump fire stock is now. But a bump fire stock is basically a device that that allows you to fire uh, an AR-15 style rifle at a very high cyclic rate of fire. So basically the bump fire, and there are different devices out there, the bump fire stock basically gives you a manual way to fire and replicate what a fully automatic you know, military-style rifle would be able to do. And is this a, uh, a device that a person can go online and, uh, and order? As far as I know, they're still open for purchase. Anybody could, could buy one. Um, uniquely enough, though, when this whole uh, bump-fire stock thing came out with the Las Vegas shooter, I, I can't tell you that I even remember ever seeing one except for maybe as a very, very young man at a gun show. And you got to remember, I'm a professional shooter. I'm around guns and shooting, you know, shooting-related people that do are into shooting literally almost every single day of the week. I travel all over the U.S. to do this kind of stuff, and I've not seen one. And here, here's why. Because the average shooter out there, the people that are in my kind of community that, that shoot guns and are hobbyists and they're hunters and they're competitors and they're self-defense gun owners and stuff like that, they don't buy bump stocks for their AR-15s or rifles. As a matter of fact, and I don't mean to insult anybody that may be listening and own one right now, but if I had a neighbor that came over and said, hey, Mike, check out my bump fire stock that I just put on my AR-15, I'd be halfway tempted to slap him and tell him what a bonehead he was and to take it off his gun and, and learn how to, you know, shoot the firearm in a responsible manner. So, anyway, I don't want to go on to, onto a tangent, but, um, yes, as far as I know, they can still be purchased. Legally. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because I made some calls prior to our interview uh, to other people who were on your circuit, and they didn't. They said the same thing you did. They, they just don't come in contact. So then I, I did some research with the various... Um, uh, gun magazines, guns and ammo, firearms, uh, um, uh, the shooter. I couldn't find one of these advertised. And so it's not a common item, yet this man was able to get a hold of it and, and, and caused a lot of trouble. So naturally, it, uh, it, created, uh, it, it created controversy. Do you have an opinion on whether or not, and I know this is just, you know, your opinion, but that's, you're a high-level guy, and that's why we're asking for it. Uh, do you have an opinion on whether or not armed citizens deter crime or not? Because this oh, is... Yeah, absolutely. They, they absolutely. I mean, you can look at the statistics. There are reports after report after report after report of armed citizens uh, deterring crime. And sometimes that's in a true armed escalated conflict where they actually have to fire their handgun and rifle. And sometimes it's just a matter of them being armed and or the person that, that was trying to, to do the criminal act, knowing that the person was armed to prevent it from happening. But yeah, I mean, there's statistically, you can, the NRA used to put out their publication and include all of the armed citizen related situations every single month where dozens, if not hundreds of individual circumstances where an armed citizen prevented crime or stopped a crime or protected themselves actually happened. So what do you think is the thinking behind those who want to do away with firearms altogether? Where do you th where are they coming from? Well, t first, first of all, um, I, hear, I will say this. First of all, 
a lot of the people, a lot of them, not all of them, but a large majority, maybe even listening right now, they say, I think we should do away with firearms, are not taking the time to think through the process logically. But I will tell you, I believe they're good people because they just want to, they want to, they want to reduce deaths, right? But if we really, if we really step back and look at things logically, instead of labeling firearms as the evil things that they are, well, real, realistically, Doc, you and I could decide, hey, we want to reduce uh, innocent person deaths. Well, if we really wanted to attack it, you know, viciously and reduce deaths, we'd go after vehicles first. We'd go after cigarettes and cancer. We'd go after the medical industry and malpractice. We'd go after things that cause hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of deaths per year versus the firearm. But the problem is the firearm gets labeled as evil because it's in the hands of someone that is evil. Um, but I do, I do believe that the people that normally propose uh, gun-related laws or anti-gun laws are, are good people and have good intents, but they're not thinking through, th- through things logically. They're mm-hmm. not logically saying, well, you know what? Um, even the deaths we just talked about of the suicides, and you work out the suicides, and then you look at the gang-related deaths, and, and then you finally water it down and say, okay, now we have this many deaths, and maybe it's male on female because... You know, a husband gets mad at his wife or a boyfriend gets mad at his girlfriend. That's all wrong. But the point is, they're still breaking a law by killing their wife or their girlfriend. So what makes you think a law is going to stop them from doing that? You know, you could look at statistics and look at how many people are killed with baseball bats and knives and whatever else. And we don't typically outlaw them because they're not as scary to someone that doesn't own a gun and promotes or supports anti-gun legislation. Most of those people, if they take the time to logically think through what they're actually asking for, would probably come to the conclusion that additional gun laws may not have and typically don't have any of the desired effect. In reality, we need to look at the other problem or look at the problem from the other angle. How do we fix the human problem? You know what I'm saying? I do, and I think your point is well taken with regard to automobiles and airplanes. I mean, we don't we don't outlaw automobiles and airplanes, but they've obviously both become weaponized. And uh, a, a, an automobile is definitely uh, you know capable of doing a lot more damage even than the guy in Las Vegas, because as we've seen around the world, you can drive an automobile or a truck into a crowd, and it's it's just awful of the, what the result is. And and we know that. So it's something that we need to do a lot of thinking about. We're going to now come on to something, a personal question for you that was sent in uh, by, uh, by one of our listeners. He said, uh, I've read of that uh, Sieglander has been a, an air marshal himself, and would he kindly uh, tell us something about what it's like being an air marshal? <laughs> well, we, we used to uh, lovingly call our job uh, with a little phrase. We used to say, fly, fly, coat and tie. And the reason we used to say that was because there was a point where the Federal Air Marshal Service went from a, um, a, a certain dress code that was, you know, very, very deep cover type dress code where the, the air marshals could dress however they want. And then later on, we ended up having to wear typically suits and, you know, suit and tie because we were up in a distinct area of the airplane and we wanted to look like business travelers. So that was our, you know, favorite saying, what are you doing today? Fly, fly, coat and tie. But that's the reality of the job, even though uh, your mission is literally to be prepared to intervene on an airplane to the point where you may have to counter hijack an airplane. That means hijackers take over the airplane, you counter hijack it from them, and then strategically control things until the airplane is safely on the ground. So to me, it's one of the single most important jobs out there, but to 
tell the listener the very truth, it's also one of the single slowest and most boring jobs you could possibly have unless you have that fateful day where you actually have to do your job. In which case, it's, uh, you know, it is the single most scary, imaginable thing I could, I could not imagine actually, you know, getting into a counter hijacking gunfight on an airplane at 33,000 feet. It would be, uh, unbelievable. Most boring job in the world until it turns into the job that you remember for the rest of your life because of that incident. That's exactly right. Another, uh, email here from a listener. He says, um, Seeklander talks a lot about mental training and preparation. Would you ask him to speak to that a bit for us? Well, you know, we, we, we actually spoke a little bit about that in the class you were in, and I, I have uh, some very distinct thoughts on mental preparation, and I teach those tools in my competitive classes in my competitive book, but I also have a, a mental preparation section in my defensive book. And then there are some similarities, but there are some differences as well. As well, and you know, one of the things about mental preparation that I always like to say, and I, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I won't get into a lot of the mental preparation details. But one of the single biggest things we could do in terms of mental preparation is actual physical preparation, and I'm talking about both fitness and skill development. And you know, and Doc, you probably know more about this than I do. One of the things that I've learned through my life, the last 15 and 20 years or so of research in this stuff is you, you can lie to everybody around you, but you can't lie to yourself, right? Um, so if you're someone that chooses to go compete and do well at the match or defend your family, but you never put the time into your fitness routine as well as your skill development, no matter what mental visualization tricks you do, deep down inside you're going to know you're not prepared. You didn't do the work. You didn't do your homework, and you're probably going to fail, you know, when the chips are down. So, uh, but, you know, of course, I do a lot of teaching and discuss uh, breathing techniques as well as visualization or imagery-type type techniques to improve the, the mind's ability to actually accomplish a task. But if you haven't done the work, all of the mental training in the world won't save you. One story that you tell that I found uh, extremely helpful is you talked about um, having shotguns for years, but you were not in training. Then, once you were in training, everything changed. There's a great difference, you say, between going out and shooting and training shooting. We've got about a minute and a half left. Please speak to that, the difference between plinking and training. Well, let's say training is led by an instructor, but practicing, for example. So if you're plinking, you're pulling the trigger. You're shooting at a can. You're shooting at a tree. You're shooting at a a watermelon. You're doing it for enjoyment, but you're not paying attention. And that is the single biggest difference. Practicing, however, dedicated practice uh, should requires that the repetitions you do, every time you touch the handgun and uh, build a grip or see the sights or pull the trigger, you're learning from that process. And that's, I, I would say, the distinct difference between just plinking and practicing. With one, you're just making the gun make noise. The gun's making noise. On the other one, you're shooting the gun and you're learning from it every single time the gun fires. You're learning how to make the process and do the process better. And in order to do that, you either have to watch a video or read a book or take a class or all of the above. You don't just suddenly become a trainer to yourself when you're beginning. 
correct. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. Well, this has been a wonderful interview, and I thank you so much for it. I'm going to end with a statistic that I think might be helpful for people listening. In the world, there are approximately 250,000 deaths every day. In the same world, there are approximately 350,000 births per day. So looking at it from the big picture, we're moving forward and there are more people living and being born rather than dying. And from a certain perspective, that's a good thing. Again, that's not meant in any way to diminish the impact of those who have someone who has died tragically. We're not meaning to do that. But we're pointing out that on the big picture, more are being born than are dying. Mike Sieglander, thank you very much for participating today in Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And I look forward to having you back in the future and keep us up to date on what's happening in the world of firearms, shooting, training, and safety. And Thanks, sir. Have a nice day. Thank you. And, and to our listeners, thank you very much for listening in on today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I look forward to meeting with you again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daily.